Father, as we come and we offer all that we are to You, we ask that as we come to Your Word, You would speak to us in the hearing of it and in our reflecting on it together. In Jesus' name, amen. We're nearing the end of our long journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of Paul to that wayward church, and we're at chapter 15. We're going to read the first part of that this morning, the first 26 verses of chapter 15. Let's hear the Word of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and after that, He appeared more than, to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then last of all to me, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But if He did not raise Him, if in, in, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through, also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him, then the end will come. When, the hand, when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. 
And thanks be to God for His Word. Well, we're at the end, the end of the year, and the end almost of the book of 1 Corinthians. And it ends with this amazing chapter all about the resurrection. It's actually a very long chapter. We didn't read it all. Um, at some points, it's, it's, it's quite difficult to grasp. But even Paul says what I'm talking about is a bit of a mystery. So, it's not surprising that we can't get the whole thing. But it begins quite simply with a little statement that Paul gives. This is what we preach. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It sums up what the church believes. Christ came and died, that He was buried, and He rose again. It's the essence of the Christian faith. And Paul starts off by saying, this is what I came and I, I reminded you of. I came and I preached to you. You received it and you took your stand. And that word stand is important because Paul is writing to a church, and we've seen this as we've gone through it, that are wobbling all over the place. They are really unsure. They're getting so much that is wrong. And as he's calling them back to the old story, to the starting point, to the gospel message that we find in the gospel stories, he's saying to them, I want you to come and I want you to stand on this. You see, this story isn't just, here's a bunch of things that Christians should believe, here's some theology, here's some things that you intellectually need to know. What he's really saying is, this is to be practical because this is who you are, why you do what you do, and how you should face every question and problem and practical decision that you've got to make as a Christian. He will end this whole chapter by saying, if you receive this message of the resurrection, then you will be able to stand firm, not wobbling at all. And it's as if, when you think about the book of, of Corinthians, there are two bookends. When we started the first four chapters, Paul was taking us right back to the cross. He was saying, you know, you've, you've looked for a Jesus who's making everything fine and, and giving you lots of power and all these spiritual things, but I want to remind you of the Jesus who came in weakness of the one who had so much power and so much honor and so much innocence, and yet he gave all that up in love as he died on the cross. And as we've seen as we've gone through it, Paul, what Paul is saying is, not only is this the ground of your salvation, but it should change how you think about everything. Not desiring power and strength and comfort, but actually looking in the places of weakness where God gives something that is completely different. And it's if the bookend as he comes to the end of this is to come to the resurrection of Jesus. All the other questions that he's looked at with them have to be seen within that context of the cross and of the resurrection. And every question we face as Christians is the same question. How do we see it within the cross and the resurrection? We had a, a meeting here yesterday making decisions about the future of church buildings about where we would go as a church, about what do we believe, and all of that in the context of worship we do within that consideration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
You see, Paul, if we, if we think about it, was actually writing to an actual church full of real people. And as we've gone through Corinthians, we've seen a little bit about that. The relationships, the problems, the factions, the divisions, the attitudes to, to, to power and prestige, to the sexual integrity of the church, to marriage and divorce and singleness, a culture where people were, were struggling to, to cope with how they dealt with a, a, a world outside where people didn't believe, and uh, where are the lines drawn? What am I allowed to do and not allowed to do? How do I respond to this? How do I use my freedom? How do we have worship together? How do we love each other or not love each other as the case may be? What's the place of women in the church? What's the place of spiritual gifts? How do we treat the poor? What's the shape of all of this? A hundred and one questions that are dealt with in that letter, the same as the church is struggling with questions today. And Paul says, the death of Jesus on the cross and the hope of the resurrection are the bookends under which we look at everything else that we face. And so he, as he began preaching Christ crucified and suggesting that that taught the church a humility and a loving self-giving for each other, so he ends with talking about the Christian hope in the resurrection and how that is to transform how we think about everything too. Christ is risen. Excellent. You see, that, 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 that's it, isn't it? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Saying that until it begins to steep into our very souls. Why is this so important? Because as he's going to explain in this chapter, this idea of Jesus risen is connected with the idea of God's promise that we too shall rise. The word is, that's used in this chapter is first fruits, and what's going on here is this. Many Jews believed as they read their Old Testament that at the end of time when the Lord returned to put all things right, the righteous, those that had been faithful and loved the Lord, would be raised they would come out of their tombs, and they would rise to a new life. And that was the promise that many, many Jews had gone through difficult days believing. But the Christian belief was that that which was promised at the end of time was no longer just a vague promise because it had started. Jesus was the first of God's act and in Jesus' resurrection, so we were receiving a promise that this would be for every single one of those who followed Him. This is why the resurrection is so important. But it also meant something very practically for Paul, because if you think about Paul's story for a moment, the resurrection had actually changed his life. He'd been going out on that road. He'd been going out on that road to Damascus as a Pharisee. Someone who was quite determined that Jesus was not the Messiah. Quite determined that these Christians who'd said He'd risen from the dead were talking a load of nonsense. Quite determined that you did not worship a human being. And so he went out to Damascus, and he went out to Damascus to kill people. That's what he was about on that road. And on that road, he met the risen Jesus 
and it totally changed his life. And that's, in a sense, as Paul talks to the Corinthians, what he's saying, if you grasp this, just as if you grasp the cross that I spoke at the beginning, if you grasp what this hope is, it will completely change your life. It will change every aspect, everything that you do, everything that you think about, every value that you have, until it's never the same again as it was for him. And as he's speaking about this, it's important for us to remember that this isn't just an idea. He's actually speaking about a real historical event. Two facts that are mentioned in what he says here. The first is that the tomb was empty. Jesus rose from the dead. And the second is that the risen Jesus was seen. Now, if you think about this, Paul is writing this letter only about 16 or 17 years after Jesus had died in Jerusalem. And he's writing it in a way where he's able to say, if you go to Jerusalem today, there are people there, lots of them, that saw Jesus. And Paul knew that because he'd spent some time in Jerusalem before and after he became a Christian. He was able to say, there's lots of people in Jerusalem today who will tell you that they saw the risen Jesus. You can go. I wouldn't recommend going to Jerusalem right now, but Paul was saying, you can go to Jerusalem and you can ask them. And he was saying that at a time when people could have gone and checked. Now, this only makes sense if it's true, think about it for a minute. He's saying 500 people can speak about it. Historical fact, definitely not just in the Bible, but a historical fact that Christianity became and started spreading very quickly. Historical fact that right from the beginning, people were saying Jesus rose from the dead. Historical fact Jews who only believed in one God were suddenly worshiping a human being as God. You have to explain that whether you're a believer or not if you're doing any type of history, and there is only one explanation. Why on earth would Paul say 500 people know this is true unless he knew there were 500 people who knew that it was true and he'd been in Jerusalem, he could have checked it out? And why on earth would those 500 people be willing to go around testifying that they had seen Jesus alive if it wasn't true? They were going to be persecuted, thrown out of their synagogues, treated terribly, ridiculed, and yet they were willing to keep doing that. 500 people don't have a mass hallucination. And in any case, they lived within a stone's throw of a tomb where there was no body and no one produced one. Paul says that Jesus appeared to the people who didn't expect it. First of all, He appeared to Peter. Then He appeared to the twelve. That included Thomas, folk that definitely didn't expect it to be true. Then to the five hundred. Then to James. James was Jesus' brother, and James in Jesus' lifetime had not believed that He was the Messiah. He changed his mind when he saw Him alive. And then lastly to Paul. And Paul who had persecuted him, was persuaded. Life-changing events as we go through this. Paul, in Acts chapter 26, is taken up to uh, arrested, and he's put on trial 
before a guy called Festus, who's a Roman official, and a guy called Agrippa, who is a Jewish king, who was actually around at the time in Jerusalem, the time when Jesus died. And they start talking to him about what he believes, and he starts telling them about the resurrection. And Festus says to him, you, you know, I was quite impressed with your philosophy, Paul, but see, now you're talking about resurrection. You're, you're off your head. Your great learning, he says, has made you go mad. This can't be true. And Paul's response is easy, is, is, is interesting, because he says to Festus, ask King Agrippa right there beside you. He knows and is familiar with these things. They did not escape his notice because they were not done in a corner. Now, what Paul is saying at that point to this Jewish official is he knows that there's people walking around Jerusalem saying these things. He knows there was nobody in the tomb because he was there. And so, we are confronted with a historical event. Why does this matter? Well, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. First of all, if we're lying about this, why would you take anything else I'm saying seriously? I'm talking about love. I'm talking about caring for folk, and I'm talking about looking after the poor, and I'm trying to challenge you in a whole load of different ways. But if at the heart I'm telling you a fairy story that didn't happen, and I would have to know didn't happen, why are you bothering to listen to anything I say? Why are you bothering to turn up in the church? And this is one of the things where lots of folk will say, well, we, we don't believe in the resurrection, but oh, we quite like Christianity and its values and its truths and other things about it. And Paul's saying, no. If we're liars, stop listening to us right now. And the second thing he's saying here is, is, is that you're still in your sins. Now, this is really quite interesting again because he's connecting the resurrection with the forgiveness of sins. But this is very personal for Paul. He had a great awareness, and we saw that as he was talking about persecuting the church, that he'd come to Jesus not just as a failure as we all do, but as one who was very much aware that he was someone who was trying to defeat this Christian message. He was a killer. And it was the gospel of Jesus that changed everything. And Paul says, if it, if it weren't for that, we'd still be in our sins. But because of that, we are in Jesus. Think of it this way. If you commit a crime and the judge sends you away to pay your debt to society, how do you know when the debt's paid? Well, the answer is when they open the door and let you out. The term is served. The debt is paid, and that's that. Jesus died to pay the debt for our sins that we might be forgiven, and the evidence that that was enough is that the door was opened, and He came back in resurrecting life into the world. You know, it's, 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 it's when you pay for something, um, have you ever had the experience of, of paying for something and then having a, a thought that they might see you didn't pay? 
and you've had to scratch around and find a receipt. You know, maybe you could take someone to a shop and you have to prove you've got... Are, are you folk that keep receipts or are you ones that just throw them out? I'm a thrower-outer. I'm not very good at that. But, it's, uh, yeah, Elaine tells me off for that. We've got to keep, keep the receipt. And it is as if the resurrection is the receipt. It's the proof that means we know that we are forgiven. And it also means that we're absolutely secure. Paul will say two things contradictorily almost in this. He says, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. And then he goes on to say, I've actually worked harder and God has done more through me than any of the others. Now, that's just historically true. Paul was used to reach more towns, more cities, more everything than any of the others were. But those two things are compatible because of the resurrection. He's able to say at one point, I am a complete failure but it doesn't matter because I'm in Christ. Now, that's security because most of us go around thinking, I am a complete failure, but never mind, I've done all these things to make up for it, so I'm actually not a bad person because look at all the things I've done. The problem with that is you'll never have any security because you'll always wonder, have I done enough? Am I good enough? I'm not a complete failure because I've achieved all these things in my work life or my office life or whatever it is, but you're always driven. You've never got security. Have I done enough? Am I impressive enough? Will people really think I'm good enough? Never mind God. But if you're able to say, I can look at all the things that I have done that are wrong, and I am in Christ, and He rose from the dead, and there is my security, then you have an unshakable confidence combined with an incredible humility of knowing it's not about you. And the second part of this, though, is that Paul says this is connected with our faith in the resurrection of the dead, because if Jesus didn't rise, then why do we say that we rise? It's interesting in, in this passage, um, he, he will speak a lot about those who sleep in death. And this is where our Christian thinking gets a little bit muddied. Because when someone dies, we often talk about them being at peace, don't we? In fact, what do, what's the thing that we, we think of on tombstones? We don't actually put it there. It's R.I.P., isn't it? Rest in peace. And that's certainly been going on on Christian tombstones for, for a long time. But that's only half the story. Because what Paul is saying here is those that sleep in death have a greater hope because of the resurrection. That is, those that sleep in death will one day rise again into a new life. It's interesting that the early Christians often put on tombstones, and you'll still see it on some today, not rest in peace, but resurgum, which is Latin for I will rise. I will rise because Jesus rose from the dead. And this matters, actually, because what it's saying is that the end of the story of our lives is caught up in the story of Jesus. Just like Jesus didn't just rise spiritually as an idea or to sit on a cloud with a harp, Jesus rose in a body. And it's interesting, the one thing that the New Testament tells us about Jesus when He rose again in the resurrection stories, and it's all a bit difficult, is that He ate fish. You know, He ate fish. He touched things. He ate things. He tasted things. That was what God's intention for him was when he rose again. And that gives us a hint of what God is saying as he talks about our resurrection. 
whatever it's like, and I don't have all the answers, I wish I did, it will be physical. We will recognize people and we will walk and we will be seen and we will eat fish. Like that. If you don't like fish, maybe, maybe in that new resurrection body you will like fish. Um, but but that's, that's the, the Christian hope and it's, it's absolutely concrete. It's not just a sort of spiritual idea that we'll go and sit on clouds and, and sort of... It's actually that God will recreate the whole world and we will rise again. And this makes sense, actually, if you think about it. When God made the world and made it good, it was physical. It was full of beauty, wasn't it? We know that. We, we see it. So, when God makes a perfect world and restores all things in Jesus, what do you expect it to look like? Well, it will be different, but it won't be completely different because when God says things are good, they're physical. They're in bodies. That's how we were made. We're not disembodied spirits, we are made physical beings. And actually, this is why it changes, not just, this isn't just a sort of philosophical idea about what we die. This makes very practical, practical sense. Because, for instance, in chapter 6, when Paul was talking about sexual ethics, and some people would maybe say in Corinth, well, it's just a body. It's a spiritual sense of worship and support. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. God doesn't care. And it's interesting how Paul responds to that, because what he says is, God raised the Lord Jesus Christ in His body. And what He's saying at that point is, your body matters. Because God's not done with bodies. God made bodies, and God is in the business of restoring and resurrecting bodies. And therefore, what we do physically matters. And by the way, that means that what we do in the world matters because God is going to bring in a new creation, and it's physical. That's one of the reasons why Christians cannot say, oh, we're involved in the spiritual things. Never mind the planet. Never mind the social structures. Never mind the relationships. As long as we're going to heaven, we're fine. The New Testament says no. For our hope is in Jesus who rose physically from the dead, and it's in the God who will recreate all things physically. And it's because of the resurrection, you see? Just because of the cross, those two begins begin to change the way that we live and we engage in this world. And it's one of the reasons that we're involved in political structures. It's one of the reasons that the church is involved in environmental care. It's one of the reasons that we're involved in social justice. It's one of the reasons that we're involved in health and, and education and all those things. And the church always has been. Because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus that changes all things. The Word wasn't a disembodied Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Bethlehem, Galilee, Judea, a cross, a tomb, the lakeside, the fish, the body, the touching, and the promise that He will return, as they said on that day of ascension, in that same manner. And so these bookends that challenge us all to live, knowing what Christ has done on the cross and knowing what has begun in His resurrection, let us stand in that. Amen.